Hello, everyone. This is Mike Epstein, and welcome to Speaking of the Arts. I want to take a moment to wish everyone a happy new year and to thank everyone for your support. I learned a lot in 2015, and I'm really excited to continue to provide the highest quality episodes with amazing guest speakers as 2016 gets underway. In fact, today we're celebrating our 20th episode, and we have an extraordinarily special guest with us. Today we're speaking with Naomi Graybill. As, as Director of Marketing and Creative Services at Carnegie Hall since 2009, Naomi oversees advertising, sales, ticketing, e-strategy, publications development, volunteer services, and retail operations. From 2006 to 2008, Naomi was Director of Marketing and Development for the Sydney Opera House, where she led a major rebranding project for the organization and helped launch its first-ever philanthropy program. Prior to this, she was the VP of Marketing and Communications for Philadelphia's Kimmel Center. In addition, Naomi has served on peer review panels for the National Endowment for the Arts and the New Jersey State Arts Council, and was also on the executive committees of the League of Resident Theaters and the Greater Philadelphia Theater Alliance. Naomi is currently on the boards of the National Center for Arts Research at SMU and the Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts at the University of Pennsylvania. She is on the faculty of the Yale School of Drama, teaching in the theater management program, and has guest lectured or taught at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, Drexel University, NYU, Duke University, SMU, and Texas A&M. Naomi, thank you so much for being here. What an honor this is. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you. Yep, this is going to be really great. I've been looking forward to our conversation for a while now. Thanks in advance for taking the time to do this. Um, would love to dive in here, and I think the best place to start would be for you to give us a little bit of background, um, uh, how you've kind of come to be where you are. So every musician knows the how to get to Carnegie Hall mantra, but I'd like to start off by having you tell us the story of how you got to Carnegie Hall. So, um, you know, I suppose the answer is a lot of good luck and being in the right place at the right time. I started playing flute when I was eight years old, and I was never terribly good, but I loved playing and really played for, for 20 years in various ensembles. I was in school bands and orchestras and um, was an English major in college. But by the time I was, you know, I, I was always the person who um, helped hang the concert posters, helped sell the concert tickets, helped organize the post-concert parties. My junior year in college, I really just thought, you know, someday someone's going to pay me to hang the posters and, and sell the tickets. Um, got a, a master's in arts management from the Yale School of Drama. I um, have had a few really amazing, well, I've, I've had a, you know, a number of amazing adventures along the way at regional theaters from the Alley Theater in Houston, Texas, to South Coast Repertory in Costa Mesa, California, the Wilma Theater in um, Philadelphia, and uh, was just really, really fortunate that this position came open at Carnegie Hall in early 2009, right upon my return from Sydney Opera House to New York City. In a nutshell, a lot of experience there that you've brought to the table. It's really wonderful. I've, yeah. I've had some great, great opportunities, and uh, yeah, like I said, right place, right time. Right place, right time. I can certainly attest to that. Well, I'm going to read Carnegie Hall's mission statement for everyone listening, and I'd love to have you discuss a few components of it to sort of set the stage here. The mission is to present extraordinary music and musicians on the three stages of this legendary hall to bring the transformative power of music to the widest possible audience, to provide visionary education programs, and to foster the future of music through the cultivation of new works, artists, and audiences. 
That's really wonderful. In your own words and experience, can you describe what is meant by the widest possible audience? Sure. So, so um, Carnegie Hall presents programming across multiple genres. And though there's a concentration in classical music, which is what I think we're primarily associated with, we, we in fact offer great, great concerts, great series in world music, pop, jazz, uh, Broadway, sing-alongs, gospel, certainly orchestras, recitals. So we really believe across the board that there's something for everyone artistically to, to relate to. So that's kind of one aspect of the broadest audience. I think a second piece of it, you know, we have programming that's accessible for all ages. We have a vast education program called the Wild Music Institute. So there's family programming, there's young people's programming, kind of kind of beginning at three year old and three year old, and then come, coming right on up through through college age. Accessibility relates to price point. We have student discounts, we have military discounts, we have public rush. So any assumptions people might have that Carnegie Hall is inaccessible by price are simply not not so. And then I think in this digital age, there's this realization that even if every seat were sold out in our concert hall, that's a finite number of people who can experience the amazing music on our stages, right? So um, the digital world has opened up a whole range of, of audience possibilities because the number of people who can experience Carnegie Hall globally you know, 24-7, is much broader, in fact, than those who can experience it by just sitting in the concert hall. So there's just this whole range of, of accessibility and, and of, um, you know, audience opportunities out there waiting to be grasped. Right. There's there's a lot going on. And, and just kind of in doing prep work for our conversation, I, I was just amazed that simply by going onto the website, the sheer amount of content that you guys are producing. And I, I really want to dive into some of that in a minute here. In, in terms of uh, a couple other things on the mission statement, what what are some sort of recent examples of how Carnegie Hall has cultivated new works? So this year, actually, is Carnegie Hall's 125th anniversary season, which is kind of cool. Marketing lo- marketers love anniversaries. Um, anyway, one of the core artistic components of this anniversary is that we've offered 125 commissions to musicians, again, across all, all genres, multiple genres, so we're really um, helping encourage musicians to develop work for today and, and for the future. So these commissions will play out over a five-year period, but, but that's an extraordinary number of commissions to offer up. Um, we have a deep partnership with the Kronos Quartet, actually. Uh, they're developing a series of quartet repertoire for students, high school-age high school musicians and, and younger. So that's a piece of this uh, commissioning project as well. Wow, that's really amazing, 125 Commission works. Quite the undertaking. That's exciting. It is. Um, it's really exciting. Yeah. One of the things you started to talk a little bit about is this idea of Carnegie Hall or any venue really has a limited number of seats, but in the digital age, that can be expanded to create um, opportunities for watching online or engaging online. So I want to uh, set the stage here for, for something to have you talk about. Um, as a great example of, of this digital co- uh, content. In September of 2013, um, a YouTube video was published featuring Ensemble ACJW, where they were basically in the middle of New York City with a sign that read, Conduct Us. And from there, people could conduct the orchestra if they wanted to, simply by kind of walking up and raising a baton. To date, the video has reached over 3.3 million views. 
And I'd really love to have you tell us a story about that, how it came about, and maybe just for people listening who aren't familiar, what, what is um, Ensemble ACJW? So that's a good question, and I'll start with that one. So Ensemble ACJW is a fantastic fellowship program that Carnegie Hall uh, has in partnership with the Juilliard School and the New York City Department of Education. This is the ninth season of Ensemble ACJW. And it's a program that fosters musicians of the future in kind of a, a three-way program that focuses on performance, community engagement, and teaching. So, so the fellows who get into the program are exceptional postgraduate young musicians. They perform at Carnegie Hall and at Juilliard, and they're partnered with public schools in, in New York City and do an awful lot of music education and, and public engagement. That's a really terrific program to, to watch for. And uh, this... this uh, video that we did, Conduct Us, was really great fun. We partnered with an entity called Improv Everywhere and basically set up music stands uh, in Herald Square on a beautiful sunny fall day. And for three hours, the, the members of the ensemble sat out there. We had a piece of music prepared and, and rehearsed. And as you said, there was a sign that said, Conduct Us, on a music stand. And it was really fun and phenomenal to watch the people who were brave enough to get on that podium. They ranged from a police officer to a four-year-old kid to women with shopping bags to, you know, I mean, it, it was really just a broad range of, of people, students with backpacks. And it's really fun to watch someone do something that's not comfortable or familiar to them. So, so most people who stood on that podium with a baton and con conducting the ensemble are people who had never done it before. So the video that you that you referenced is a, a fun end result of of that. It was actually just really fun to be there for those three hours and watch the whole process. Oh, I'm sure. And I'll I'll put I'll put a link to the video in the show notes so people can click and click it and watch what we're talking about. And I would imagine for the musicians, it was probably an interesting experience too, because you can really, <laughs> as you watch, you can really get the sense that they're trying hard to just for a moment forget that they, first of all, they have complete mastery over the music, but they're really trying to interact with these conductors who are not conductors. <laughs> exactly right. So, so it's not, the musicians weren't on autopilot. Like they didn't just yeah. play the piece at the same tempo with every conductor. If someone conducted really slowly, that's how right. they played it. And when people sped up, that's how they played it. So it was really a fun thing. So what was sort of the genesis for the project? I mean, it's gotten a lot of views. It's certainly probably generated a lot of traffic and attention to ACJW. Was that sort of the goal or what, what, was, what was sort of the criteria going into it? So, so I suppose, you know, in, engagement would be the, the, the buzzword. We want to continually connect with people in multiple ways. So, you know, back to what I was saying about the, the mission and reaching broad audiences, um, one way to connect is to have people actually sit in the concert hall and hear exceptional music, but another way is to, to engage in a much more public forum like this. So that was that was great. And I think the other goal was to, to have fun with classical music and to really to – really, um, make music accessible in a in a different way, reach a new audience because it's fun. Yeah, it's such a good example. And I think people listening, hopefully it'll spur some some new ideas for thinking about how they can engage with their own audiences. And I just want to make the point, too, that one thing I'm sort of learning about um, is this idea of constraints. So you kind of use this scenario as an example because you've placed – the ensemble in a specific location for a specific amount of time with a very specific purpose. And then by doing that, look what happened. You know, you really sort of force everything into a box. A lot of people think about, you know, think outside the box, but really create the box and then think inside of it. And I think that's a great example of that. And, Thank you. Um, yeah, we're pleased. Yeah, totally. So um, 
I'd really love to have you talk a little bit more about maybe one or two unique marketing initiatives you've been involved with at Carnegie. So, for example, uh, you've mentioned the 125th anniversary is going on, which uh, there's a lot going on with that. Was there a recent special performance at Carnegie that maybe required you and your team to take a unique approach to market the event? So, so um, we curate about 150 concerts a year on our, our three stages, and no, and, and everything is one night only, and nothing, you know, no concert on a Tuesday night is exactly like the concert on the Monday before it. Everything is incredibly broad. So there was a week in December of, of last year where we had a gospel sing-along uh, curated by Ray Chu, phenomenal gospel sing-along, and a few days later was uh, Evgeny Kissin, and a, a phenomenal keyboard artist, doing Yiddish doing uh, Jewish Russian music on the keyboard and reciting Yiddish poetry. So you can imagine that the way one markets those two things is fundamentally different. So our marketing team is always uh, figuring out the right audience to target for particular kinds of programming. We have one upcoming, Stephanie Blythe, phenomenal opera singer, uh, doing a, a program called Sing America. And it's a sing-along on our main stage in, in uh, Stern Auditorium Perlman stage. So it's an opportunity for anyone to say, I sang at Carnegie Hall. You know, it's a sing-along at Carnegie Hall with Americana music from the early part of the 20th century. Um, so, so in terms of how we how we market these things, we really, for each concert, have one level of marketing that's kind of broadest reach, but then kind of get, get much more targeted. So in the case of the Stephanie Blythe uh, concert, we recorded a series of videos with her where she answered questions that were posted on our various social media channels. We invited the world to pose questions to Stephanie Blythe. She's answered them in video. They're fabulous. It's fun. And hopefully people will get a sense of her personality and want to come along and, and be part of that concert and sing at Carnegie Hall. That's so great. Yeah, I, I'm, I love hearing you talk about these things because I'm hearing that there's really no end to the sort of content that you can create around these special events and that that's really the key. You mentioned we have our sort of overarching marketing strategy that we're always doing, but because we're doing such unique programs, it's actually a major and exciting opportunity to think differently and to really engage people that way. So I'm glad you're giving these examples. I don't I don't think a lot of, I mean, I think a lot of organizations try and do this, but I think they struggle with, well, how do we do it? And these are some great examples. It's fun. And we're also in a market that is quite broad. We're in New York City. So, so there's there there is truly something for everyone on our stages, but there's also someone in New York City who will be interested in everything we do on our stages. So, so we have a kind of a great sandbox to play in as marketers. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would imagine that could be somewhat of a double-edged sword because while you have access to a vast, diverse market of concert attendees and arts enthusiasts at the same time, you're competing with a lot of other big organizations too. So I think, um, again, just what I'm learning from you and from everything you guys are doing, there's this sort of idea of, you know, what we're doing has to sort of fit within our brand and our mission statement, which is why I wanted to start the whole conversation with reading that. And I, I, I see the transparency there. So it's just kind of cool to follow what you're discussing as it relates to, you know, what is the mission of Carnegie. And it seems to be working for you guys. Not good. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. what's on our stages is, is truly phenomenal every, you know, every night. So, so again, there, there are programs that, are, that will appeal to different particular tastes. 
but the quality is unimpeachable every single night, and, and that's a fantastic um, starting point when you're a marketer. Absolutely. Well, it occurred to me you've you've worked at some very prestigious but diverse arts organizations throughout the world, including the Sydney Opera House, the Kimmel Center. How much would you say local culture factors into the way you market and think about shows and series? I mean, what are some of the bigger differences between audiences in Australia as compared with maybe Philly or especially now New York? So it was really interesting when I went to Australia in early 2006. I really wondered if everything I had done for the previous 15 years in my career would go out the window or whether it would be similar. I was totally curious. And it turns out that you can go as far away on the planet as humanly possible, and and fundamentals of, of marketing and of, of ticket selling are exactly the same. So, so I think kind of the core core principles, core strategies, core tactics – um, you know, don't don't change. That said, there's a different competition set from market to market. So in Sydney, the um, you know Sydney Harbour and the great outdoors is a huge source of competition. Twelve months a year. I mean, it's a spectacular setting. The weather is great year round, and so you kind of are competing with with you know people being being outdoors. That's that's very different than in New York. Whereas in New York, the um, you know, the amount, you said this a moment ago, the, the amount of competition in this marketplace in, in our specific field, in, in the performing arts field, you know, is extraordinary. There's nothing like it. So just as an individual, I'm probably out five nights a week at concerts, at plays, at, you know, at various things. And I don't think I see 5% of what New York has to offer. And that's being out five nights a week year round. So, um, so, you know, getting cut through in a complex marketplace like New York is a very different challenge. Philadelphia is certainly not like that. There's, there's an awful lot going on in Philly, but it's not like New York. So I, I think the trick in each market is kind of sizing up what your competition is, being really clear on what your, your kind of brand position, what your organization's placement is in the market, and then channeling um, limited resources because there's no marketing department on the planet that has infinite resource, you know, so channeling your resources to figure out how to, how to have impact. That's awesome. Yeah. The, it's really exciting or I should say just interesting to hear you talk about the differences in those different locations, especially in Australia. Um, I want to transition here a little bit and uh, have you talk about, some things I, I watched in an interview you did for Classical Next. This was in 2013. And again, I'll, I'll post a link to this video so people can check it out. Um, but I'd love to have you talk a little bit about some of the following, just maybe briefly. For example, one of the things you discussed in that video was connecting artists with audiences. And um, you've mentioned a few examples already, but uh, just give us a few more. What are some other examples of how Carnegie connects artists specifically with audiences? So I'll mention this, a um, kind of series that we started, maybe series is the wrong word, an activity that we started probably five or six years ago now, and we call it Salon Encores. So every every performance that we program in Weill Recital Hall, our smallest hall, is followed in, up in, in the um, the bar and lounge right outside of that hall with a free glass of wine, a free cup of tea or coffee for everyone in the audience and for the artists who just performed. So it's a great opportunity for members of the audience to engage with the artists they just heard. And the artists, of course, invite their family and friends who are, who are in the audience. Um, so there's a really good buzz in the room. Um, 
there's an opportunity to discuss with fellow audience members what, what you just heard on, on stage. We actually have little cocktail napkins that have discussion starter questions on them, along with the free drink, drink of wine. So we really try to, to create, in a sense, like an old-fashioned salon where people talk to, to and with the artists after they perform. And that's proved really fun and, and successful. Um, you know, we, we um, one of our big artistic series, maybe three years ago now, was a series called Collected Stories, which was curated by David Lang, the composer, the extraordinary composer. And those concerts were all at 6 p.m. and followed by free drinks at the bar for everyone in the audience. And again, the artists all came out, mixed and mingled. The composer was there. Um, there was an opportunity. There was kind of a, a board where people could post their thoughts and pose questions on, on the board, and they were answered by artists. So we really try to create an ambiance where, where artists and audiences intermingle and, and talk to each other, and I think that that's really, really important. Artists aren't other, and they don't exist in a different plane. They, God knows they have a talent you know, that's extraordinary, but to connect artists and audiences in a personal way, I think, adds a lot of dimensionality to the, to the experience. So Carnegie Hall does, does that when we can. There are a number of artists incredibly gracious, you know, graciously donate their time after a performance to come to subscriber receptions and, and mix and mingle with, with um, our core ticket buyers. So, so we try to do a lot of that. That's such a cool example of having questions um, already on, on the cocktail napkins. That's something simple like that I would imagine goes a long way to really create a good dynamic between people who are at the concert and then how to interact with the, the artist. I think that's a great idea. It's fun. It's kind of silly, but really a fun way to put it out there and to really say we're, tr we're here to encourage conversation. We're not, we hope you're not only here to just have the free glass of wine. We hope you're right. here to really engage in, in this conversation because we think there is a conversation to be had. Absolutely, yeah. Cool. So um, here's another question I was thinking about, and I think it came from the video that I watched for Classical Next, but the idea of how – with with audiences increasingly finding new content through their mobile platforms, how does Carnegie try and reach them there as compared to 30 years ago with traditional print? So I think the fundamental difference between the digital space and everything that existed before it is that the digital space is, is all about two-way communication. It's all about engagement between two parties, not going one way from us to, to audiences. So that's great. So we, we use our social media platforms. We use Facebook and Twitter to pose questions to audiences at all times. We're not just saying, tomorrow night's concert is X, please buy a ticket. We're, we're, we're asking people to, to give feedback and give input and, and pose questions to artists and pose questions to the hall. So, so two-way is fundamental. We do a lot of contests in the digital space. So we had a fun contest a few years ago called the Golden Ticket Contest, where we asked, so kind of like, kind of based on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know, we um, used that go the Golden Ticket idea and asked people to articulate what their ideal night at Carnegie Hall would be, and we got amazing responses, and the winner got a, a prize that included a lot of tickets to a lot of different events at, at Carnegie Hall, and then we made a big social media thing out of that. We, um, one of our core program, programmatic initiatives on our stages is festivals. We, we almost annually have, have major anchor festivals uh, that, that focus on a particular theme artistically on our stages. And around those festivals, we often do big trip giveaways. So our last festival was called Ubuntu Music and Arts of South Africa. And we work with the 
consulate and with the Tourism Bureau for South Africa and gave away a free trip to South Africa, which was pretty amazing. So these are all kind of two-way two-way means of, of engagement and of talking to audiences, you know, other than saying to them, again, buy a ticket and come sit in the seat. Yeah, that's really great. And I'll volunteer up front. I, I, when I think of Carnegie Hall, I don't necessarily first think of uh, festivals. So I'm, I'm, I just learned something there. That's a really cool example of, of another just facet that you guys are doing. So let me actually give you a few examples of past ones that we've that we've done. We did Ubuntu, as I said. The year before that, we did a festival called Vienna City of Dreams, which was quite quite beautiful and featured the Vienna Philharmonic. Uh, we did one called Japan NYC. We had a festival called um, Ancient Paths, Modern Voices, which was about China. So so um, really interesting theme festivals that are musically rooted, but also where we engage with artistic partners around New York City with museums, with galleries, with other performing arts institutions, with restaurants, you know, to, to, to kind of create a theme and, and expose audiences broadly to, to how that theme might play out in multiple art forms. It's really fun. That's excellent. All right. Well, as, I, as we mentioned a little earlier, this year for you guys is a truly amazing milestone. And specifically on May 5th, Carnegie Hall is going to celebrate its 125th anniversary. What are some of the marketing initiatives you guys are working on to commemorate the occasion? So we um, decided to do a number of videos that were experiential as opposed to being concert-related. So we launched a video in November called Audiences of Tomorrow, which captured a group of second graders who came to a very small special concert, in fact, performed by Ensemble ACJW, uh, specifically for this group of second graders. And second graders don't don't know what the expectation is in a classical music concert, and they came into the room and had a grand time. And so that was a fun video that we put out there called Audiences of Tomorrow. We released a second video in December called Carnegie Hall Moments, which is film clips of Carnegie Hall and the movies for for decades. So ranging from Brad Pitt to the Chipmunks, you'll hear snippets of, of Carnegie Hall mentioned in, in film and television shows, uh, we, of course, have one called How Do You Get to Carnegie Hall that will be released in, in a couple of weeks' time. And there are a number of others that are slated for release later this year. So the video component is, is one aspect of our kind of general marketing uh, celebration of this anniversary. We released an app in December called Dear Carnegie Hall, and it's an augmented reality app that, that features stories of different people who have had different kind of engagements with, with the hall, backstage folks, artists, members of the staff, audience members, students. Um, so it's available for free download in Android and Apple format. It's a really fun feature. We are working with Sony to release a Highlights of Carnegie Hall box set. That will come out later this spring. We've worked with, with, um, oh, with Serendipity, which is a restaurant in New York City, to have a Carnegie Hall Sunday to celebrate the anniversary year. So we've done a whole range of, of promotions that, again, are not concert-specific but are more institutional and, and brand-based, and we're having a lot of fun with it. That's so great. Yeah, there's just an endless amount of ideas that, are, that I'm hearing from you that are I, – I, I love hearing you describe all this. And, you know, I would really encourage everyone listening, go on to the Carnegie Hall website, check out some of these interactive experiences that are available which are specifically designed to commemorate the anniversary. A couple things that I, I really love checking out, there's a page called Our History, Your Stories, which allows people to read interesting stories from people who have visited the hall. Some really inspiring things on there. Viewers can also submit their own personal stories about inspiring experiences that they've had. And then this other thing is just 
All I can say is you got to check this out. Um, it's called the Google Cultural Institute Interactive Feature, and it's just amazing. People can watch a concert directly from the stage in a unique, interactive 3D environment, complete with the option to choose different camera angles. If that doesn't get someone excited to go to a show at Carnegie Hall, I don't know what will. <laughs> it's just really, really cool. So... I'm, I'm glad you're talking about some of these things. What I mean, with those things, what what was involved with the production and collaboration? How would somebody go about setting something like that up? Well, so, so let me begin by just saying that the Stories platform, um, when we began talking about it, you know, it was clear to us that during this anniversary season, it was key to recognize not only the artists on our stages, but the audiences and staff throughout throughout 125 years who have been pivotal to our success. So we really wanted to create a platform that could be accessible by all globally. Anyone can upload a story in video format, in, in as a photo, as a photo link, you know, as a narrated story, as a podcast, as a written story. So, so that was really an important part of this anniversary, capturing stories from every possible stakeholder group. We worked with the developer to develop this platform, and it's been live on our site since June 2015, and will continue to live on well beyond this anniversary season. But as you said, you know, the, the stories that are up there really are, are very moving and funny, and there's a, a, a broad range of them. So I, I hope that your, your listeners go onto that platform, read some of the stories, but also contribute their own. And then in terms of the Google Cultural Institute, that came about as a result of a conversation between Carnegie Hall's executive and artistic director, Clive Gillenson, with Amit Sood, who's the head of the Google Cultural Institute. You know, Google had a platform for several years that was quite successful that focused on the visual arts in the museum world. And I think Clive and, and Amit talked about how, how that site could be replicated in the performing arts world. And we've been working with Google for several years on making that happen. And uh, it launched in December, and we're really, really thrilled about that platform. So as you said, there's this 360 video featuring the Philadelphia Orchestra, which is great fun. You know, you can be in the in the oboe section or the, you know, the string section or the percussion section. It's really kind of fun to place yourself within an orchestra. There are also a number of exhibits, curated exhibits on, on that site of different elements of Carnegie Hall's history and current programming. Uh, there are virtual tours of the inside of the hall, and we'll continue to be to add to that that site over over time to have a look that's so great well um i know your time is pretty limited here but um i want to thank you for everything you've been talking about and, and giving people a really pretty unique and amazing inside look at what's going on behind the scenes there at carnegie maybe to wrap up our conversation what, what are a few upcoming shows that have you really excited that everyone should check out and i'm, I'm mentioning that specifically with the understanding that a lot of us, myself included, are going to be in New York City a week from now for APAP, and there's a lot going on, and what a better opportunity to check out a show at Carnegie Hall. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so during the APAP week, there, there of course, is The Song Continues, which is a Marilyn Horn-led um, week of, of master classes and, and concerts with young artists, so that's terrific. I mentioned earlier the Stephanie Blythe sing-along. That's on January 23rd, and that'll be unique and really quite terrific. And then um, I would say if you happen to be in New York in the middle of February, on February 20th, Roseanne Cash will be here uh, finishing up her season-long Perspective series, which is a series that she curated, uh, doing a, a version of her album, The River and the Thread, and that's going to be a phenomenal concert here towards the end of February. So, so please come. Exciting stuff. Well, Naomi, again, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real honor, and I, I, I hope we get to meet soon. 
And I want to thank everyone um, for listening to Speaking of the Arts. We'll see you in New York at APAP in a few days. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.